and welcome to Fertility Springboard, the podcast series brought to you by Fertility Help Hub. I'm Eloise, founder of Fertility Help Hub, and over the series, I will be bringing you conversations with some of the most influential and inspiring professionals and experts around the world to arm you with useful and empowering thoughts and resources to ease your fertility journey. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on anything. It's packed full of inspiring interviews, resources, discounts and offers, competitions and real life stories. Hello, and today I'm very pleased to be welcoming my guest, Dr. Larissa Corder. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, It'd be wonderful if you could tell everyone listening a little bit more about who you are, what you do, who you help, and also importantly, what you're doing at the moment with the current COVID-19 situation, um, and a bit more about how you've been redeployed and you're helping on the front line. So yes, I am an obstetrician and gynecologist uh, by trade and um, my particular interest is fertility within that. So um, most people will know me because of that and the work that I do within that field. So really it encompasses looking after women and men to help them to get pregnant and then um, that progresses into looking after them antenatally during labour and postnatally as well as treating various different um, female health conditions that could impact on fertility or a separate to that. So yeah, my job is, is great. It's very dynamic. I absolutely love it. But at the moment, uh, the pandemic has meant a lot of changes within the hospital simply because there's been a huge demand in terms of treating the number of cases affected by COVID. And as a result of that, I uh, essentially volunteered to help and and serve on the front line, the foremost of the front line, which is essentially the intensive care unit. And that's where I've been for the past, well, just over a month now, um, basically working as as an aspiring intensivist, shall we say, (laughs) Um, and um, learning a lot during that um, and really just trying to lend a hand where I can. So it's been certainly quite challenging to start off with, but um, I have to say one of the most amazing experiences of my life that I certainly will, will never forget so that's uh, where I'm currently at and based. But of course, I, I still continue to to sort of pitch in certainly in terms of the, the public health work that I'm doing with maternity and healthcare, which is, of course, still very, very close to my heart and to which I will be returning soon. But well, once this crisis is um, is under control. Absolutely. And that's incredible that you're that you have offered to um, help support on the front line. You must have seen some very difficult scenes that most of us are only reading about and watching on the news. Um, I mean, where, where are we in terms of the situation? Do you feel like we're turning a corner? Yes, I mean, we're definitely turning a corner. I said this about, you know, two weeks ago, I sort of felt that things were changing. And 
thankfully, you know, as a result of everyone's hard work, and that includes all the people in the hospital, all of our wonderful NHS staff, but also the public who followed all the rules and who've been self-isolating and self-distancing, we are reaching a point where we're certainly seeing um, the patients who survived with us up until now really beginning to turn that corner and begin to get better. But you know, we, we have to bear in mind and understand that someone who's been in intensive care, who's been really badly affected by COVID, which has essentially wiped out a lot of their organs, mm-hmm. this isn't a case of just snapping out of it. This mm-hmm. takes a long time. And even when they come off the life support treatment, they need a long period of time to rehabilitate back to normal and to learn to do normal things such as breathing, um, walking, you know, eating, all of these things that, that we take for granted, but that are suddenly stripped away from you when you get this this horrible condition that can affect some people within our population so, so badly. And quite honestly, um, you know, it's been impossible to sugarcoat a lot of this stuff. Some of the cases that I've seen have, have been the worst things I've seen in my life. Um, really, really just incredibly harrowing and difficult and um, I don't think there's been a single one of us who's worked in the intensive care unit who hasn't been emotionally affected by what we've seen and um, yes it's I'm relieved that we are finally now turning that corner and you know it's wonderful when we see the patients leave the ward we we give them all these claps and cheers and there's a real sense of camaraderie it's it's really really wonderful and um it just makes you realize, you know, what, what we've all been doing this for really essentially. So it's all paying off. That's the good news. Good. And you're right. It's almost a sense of everyone coming together and being united and putting on Mm. a united front to get through this the best we can. Mm. As you said, something that was unforeseen and something that we've, we haven't had to deal with um, obviously in our lifetimes. Um, So I I can only imagine the, the sort of scene that you're, you're oh, having yeah. to endure at the moment um so that's incredible thank yeah. you for telling us a bit about that and i and i think you're right also we don't hear a lot about the aftermath in terms of um patients recovering um and how long that takes and as you said how difficult it can be to learn to do the things that you take for granted mm. so that's a bit yeah of, you know. gosh completely you know i think Someone asked me um, before, you know, if there was a big takeaway message that I'd give to people from this pandemic and having seen what I have. And in all honesty, it it would be to really value and appreciate the life that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that may seem a little bit cheesy to say, but I think when you've been at that interface between life and death, you can't help but really just start to appreciate how incredible life is and and what we've been given you know and the health that we've been given and i i can't help but feel that actually when i do return to my normal day job shall we say um you know having seen what i have and and been involved with all of these cases i honestly think it's going to give a whole new dimension to what i do Mm. um, which is all about helping to create life so it's the opposite end of the spectrum and you know there's something very poignant about all of it and um and i i'm just i'm so grateful to to have been able to serve in the pandemic and to have been given this opportunity to learn so much um and you know to to make my colleagues laugh at times as well because when they've been teaching me to insert a central venous catheter which is essentially um this tube that goes into your jugular vein which all the anesthetists you know do in a flash 
um, very impressively. The only way I can actually do it is by imagining I'm doing an egg collection. So I'm going through the vagina and it's someone's neck. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So we've had a lot of laughs on the uh, board about that. <laughs> I, I do have to say, I love your sense of humor and that comes across on your, your Instagram account as well, because um, oh, you know, sometimes I think, um, you know, a bit of lightheartedness can go a long mm. way to encourage people and to keep people positive, can't it? Mm. Oh God, yeah, massively. Time, but but to be able massively. to come together and and have that team spirit is amazing. Yeah, and look, you know, the humour gets you through the tough times, and I think it, it's the same. Like you know, when I'm when I'm seeing couples as well who um, who have struggled for so long to become pregnant, and it's so tragic, and it's and it's so awful. But you have to be able to find you know some some sweet and humorous moments at times with all of that. You know, when you're talking about things like sex and so on, and you know, which everyone finds a bit embarrassing, and it just makes people feel human. You know, yeah. it makes them feel alive and. Yes. Um, it's the same in this situation that it's it's really important um, to, to 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 be able to do that. I think um, when you're doing a difficult job, it's the only way I think that you can get through certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember once speaking with people who served in the worst sort of war situations and being on the front line and cold face of the war, and saying things like that. You know, it was the humour. It was the only thing that kept them going and being able to have any sort of sanity and perspective in all of it so yeah it is it's, it's massively important well that leads me on to my next question actually for us to talk a little bit about and um for anyone who's listening we will um we will come back to the COVID-19 situation and what how that's affecting fertility mm. and mm. where things are going hopefully fingers crossed um next week with a bit more of a positive outlook on clinics reopening um but before we come on to that let's talk a little bit more about how you help people in terms of fertility because what mm. I love about your approach is that you combine it with um, wellness as well and, and mental well-being and physical well-being, which I, I feel is so important from my own um, struggle to have my children via um, yeah. bonus sperm IVF. Um, so, and, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you about what, was what are the common questions you get asked? Um, what are the questions mm-hmm. that people feel too embarrassed to ask because they're having to yeah. ask things that they would normally, you know, most people take for granted just happen naturally at home? Right. Yeah. I mean, gosh, how to even start answering that? There's so many. And, you know, remembering we're talking about fertility here. So, you know, the, the, the scope of embarrassing questions is, is massive, really, because it ranges anywhere between kind of, you know, sex positions and what the best position is to, to conceive all the way through to, you know, does, does my vagina look normal? Um, does the way that it smells down below, is, is that normal? Is this discharge normal? Um, all sorts of things, you know, are my, are my periods, the fact that they're heavy or scanty or light, is, is that normal? And I think the one common thread that sort of seems to come through a lot of these questions is, am I normal? Is what I have normal? And somehow we have it in our head that actually everyone else is, is fine and is okay and is an example of normality, whereas we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that actually, really from when we're little, we just have so little education about our bodies to start off with, about sex education, about fertility. I mean, I, I don't recall that 
any of us, certainly not when I was in school, was ever taught anything about conception and fertility. I had some sex education, um, but you but know, that was all about it, how not to get pregnant, wasn't it? Yes, what happened? Right, aren't exactly, exactly. But no one really spoke about periods and what was normal and what wasn't and you know um ovulation and things like that it, it, it was just something that was kind of glossed over and I guess because you know back then people found it terribly embarrassing to talk about especially with you know kids and so the consequence of all of that is that we grow up sort of thinking that actually you know somehow we might be abnormal and everyone else is normal and feeling too embarrassed to necessarily raise it with anyone to go and see a doctor about it. it makes it very difficult to to spot certain symptoms or when you should go and present and see someone so the typical example is endometriosis so many women who suffer from symptoms like really bad periods which are heavy painful painful sex um, pain not just during a period but really throughout the month and lots of women ignore it, thinking that, oh, you know, it, it's just something that, you know, I, I should get over and, you know, it, it's probably not a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the general culture seems to make them feel that actually they shouldn't go and bother anyone about it because it's all in their heads. And, you know, sadly, there's also some medics out there who can be very dismissive over those symptoms, don't necessarily take them seriously or investigate them. And women can spend anywhere between seven to 10 years trying to just find a diagnosis for endometriosis, let alone have it treated. And you can imagine, you know, when, when that's left rampant to, you know, to continue to spread and progress, you may have someone who starts off with very mild endometriosis that then progresses to quite severe endometriosis that then progresses to subfertility and starts affecting them for the rest of their life. So, you know, I just think it's one of these great injustices that starts off from when we're young and then propagates and continues. And one of my greatest desires is, is to try and change that from a very young age so that we end up teaching you know, younger girls and boys about their fertility and about, you know, actually there may be problems when you're older and these are the things to look out for. And, you know, these are the, the these are the times when you should think about perhaps starting your family and starting some of these conversations so that actually people learn what the biological clock is and why it's important and why men and women need to understand each other in terms of that. I think, you know, we, we need to open up all these conversations and start removing these stigmas. And that's the only way we're going to be able to to change things and, and help people and, and try and avoid a lot of situations that I see, which is where people almost inevitably tend to present um, sometimes when it's a little bit too late. Um, and, you know, they can't reverse some of the effects of aging. And had they known before, they would have made some very different decisions. So even if they didn't find themselves in a relationship, they may have stored or frozen their eggs mm -hmm. or thought about creating embryos and things like that, um, which now, thankfully, we, we have means and resources to do. So, yeah, you know, the other thing to say is that no, going back to your original question, no question is too embarrassing to ask, by the way. There is no such thing. Yeah. You know, it's because um, every, every question that enters your mind, you know, needless to say, plenty of other people would have had the same thought, <laughs> the same question going around in their head. So never feel embarrassed to ask something or to inquire, you know, because that, that can only benefit you and knowledge is power. And, and you can do something with it then.
Totally. And I'd say the same about emotions, you know, if you're mm. feeling um, anxious or hopeless mm. or jealous, these are all feelings that other people are definitely feeling who are going through similar yes. fertility struggles. Yes. Are too, so don't beat yourself up that you're the only one feeling like that. Oh um, and God, you shouldn't absolutely. be feeling like that. Um, and I, yeah. I was, it didn't make me laugh, but the other day um, a friend was talking about how embarrassed she felt, you know, going for a smear test. And I thought, yeah. well, <laughs> if you've been an IVF patient, that mm, is well yeah. standard, you know, you're used to right. having your right. <laughs> transvaginal um, camera every day. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, that's the thing that you almost wave bye-bye to a lot of your dignity yeah. um, when, when you go through some of this treatment and, and you know, if you give birth uh, vaginally as well, lots of women will say the same thing. So, um, but you know, that there's power in that. That's the thing that I think when you've faced that and got over the stigma of that, it's very, very empowering. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly had lots of women um, initially come to see me who feel very embarrassed about having a, a vaginal uh, examination or um a transvaginal probe inserted and that's very natural you know because it almost looks like the sort of device that might cause pain and and if you've never had it you know inserted before or if you've never had it used before it's very natural that you feel anxious but don't be embarrassed to articulate that and to say that because actually there's things that that we can do to help Mm -hmm. and you know the same with a smear test that if you feel too embarrassed to maybe even see a male doctor about that there's always you know, someone female that you can see, or perhaps a nurse, um, you know, and, and if you find it uncomfortable and painful, there's different devices, different sizes that we can use. So never ever feel forced or pressured into any of these things, because we have so many different methods to get around it. And sometimes it is a question of easing someone into it, you know, allowing someone, first of all, to, to touch and feel the instrument, to understand what it's doing, what it's about. And then, easing them into that, making them feel comfortable. And that's a really vital thing because I do truly believe that, especially someone who's having these experiences for the first time, or let's say going for their smear the first time, if they have a terrible and traumatic experience, that will scar them for life. Yes. And that woman won't, as a result, pretend, uh, present for her smear tests. You know, we may miss opportunities to essentially detect cancer on that particular woman because her initial experience may have been so terrible that it's put her off for the rest of her life. And I I just think that we actually need to understand the impact that that we have as as medics when when women do come to us and they trust us. Um, You know, it's a really big deal. It's a massive deal. And we need to respect that. So I, I feel really powerfully that actually you know uh, a, a woman's encounter with the medical profession especially with something as intimate as an internal examination it, it needs to be something that you know I wouldn't say she necessarily finds pleasant because I don't think anyone really does but you know that she feels very comfortable with that she feels empowered as a result of rather than the opposite yes I agree with you 100% um, and you've been am I right in thinking that you've been working with um, ITV on some fertility issues to sort of help try and break that stigma and you know raise yeah of the of issues in women's health yeah. in general yes exactly so um, I've been working with this morning for a couple of years now and we decided to launch um, a competition for people to apply to essentially be guided by me in um, what 
has become the conception plan. So um, several people might have heard of this. And it's really this combination of, I like to call it East meets West, you know, it's this combination of um, scientific research, evidence-based things mixed in with holistic wellness treatment that I'm a passionate believer of. And so we um, took the couples who um, had applied and actually, you know, that I, I was really, and we all were very set about, you know, giving this opportunity to couples who'd struggled for a long time and who had serious issues. Um, you know, some of them had struggled for so long and had both male and factor issues that actually, you know, even the NHS was refusing to give them advice, was refusing to take them on. We all know how difficult it is to actually get any sort of help on the NHS if you're mm -hmm. struggling with infertility. Um, and we essentially took these couples um, through a course through various different pillars of the conception plan and um, we had one of the couples become pregnant um, quite shortly after we started working with them and we honestly couldn't have made this up but it, it's the complete truth that they gave birth to baby Freddie in late December and they were sat on that this morning sofa with me with Phil and Holly literally a year to the day of when we launched that competition um, <laughs> with their baby in their arms after three years of struggle with both male and female factors um, so you know that was uh, an incredible story and I am so so proud of Catherine and Dan who are the couple who have been so vocal about their struggles and what they went through and, and how much the plan helped them um, and you know I am so happy for them because they've wanted this like so many other couples for so long and to be able to see them achieve their dream and without any you know medical intervention was was just unbelievable and completely just the greatest thing so definitely um one of my proudest moments in in terms of just being able to do that and being blessed and fortunate enough to being able to to reach out to them in terms of that so yes uh that that's essentially how i've worked that's one of the biggest stories um that i've worked with on this morning that the current stuff we're working on is all about the front line and the pandemic <laughs> needless to say Sorry, that leads me on to the next mm. one, which is that in, infertility or fertility, should I say, as a, as a struggle, is never shameful. And so people yeah, feel afraid to um, get in touch and seek help. Wouldn't you agree? Mm. Because it's much mm. better to be active and do something about it than sit on it, um, yes. hoping that things might change. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there was a time a couple of years ago when no one would have thought to discuss a subject like fertility in the media, let alone TV. Um, it just wasn't something that, you know, what was that a lot of people felt comfortable about. It was seen as a very taboo subject with a lot of stigma attached to it. And to a certain extent, it still has some of that. But the great thing about the world that we're living in now is that there are so many campaigners out there. There are so many bloggers, there are so many charities and people doing wonderful work to try and remove that stigma. And, you know, it, it's taken a lot of brave people, um, including Catherine and Dan, who, who came out on national TV and said, look, you know, these are the struggles we faced for three years. And um, the fact that Catherine, you know, struggled with polycystic ovaries and, and Dan was struggling with um, suboptimal sperm counts and had, you know, varicoceles. Um, and they were really open about that. And, and that was so brilliant because I think people like them have helped to really 
reshape our whole cultural attitude towards subfertility I you'll notice I, I don't really like to use that word infertility because mm. I don't really believe that anyone truly is and I think it's an incredibly um just harsh and cold and sterile word that I don't think should be associated with anyone um so I I always refer to people as subfertile because I always think there's hope um no matter how we get that you know, because there, there are so many different alternative treatments and routes that we can go under. And, and that's the important thing to, to fill people with hope. And albeit it has to be realistic hope, um, but it's really important that there's a positive message that's given out there, not one that's just about, you know, bashing people over it and judgment. And, and that's the other thing why I think people are so scared to talk about it still. You know, the fact they fear the judgment that's coming from societies and at large the fact that so many women fear that you know people are going to think well they're in this situation because they chose to be you know they chose their career over having children they chose other things above prioritizing for a family and it's honestly it's a can I swear here a little bit it's a pile of crap <laughs> I can <laughs> really <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I'd use the harsher word than that but it yeah, really is yeah a pile of crap. yeah it's it is Exactly, oh. exactly. And actually, also it's so of you because um, mm. my husband um, has azuspermia due to Klinefelter syndrome. And that was only, right. um, we only realized that when, or discovered that when we were trying to have children. So we, after a, um, an unsuccessful micro TZ operation in the States, mm-hmm. uh, we went down the donor sperm route. So at, mm-hmm. to that point, there are other ways to build families if Absolutely. You can't use your own genetics. And also, mm. um, he found very much so that it male, you know, male fertility is not really talked about. He felt mm-hmm. ashamed and embarrassed to talk to even his friends. Um, mm-hmm. That made it difficult for me to navigate because I wanted to talk to my friends, but he didn't feel comfortable about it. Um, and it wasn't actually until our children were born that his views changed on it. And he thought, hang on a second, it would be great to see a shift here and to see men talking more about it. And that's yeah. why he's supporting me um, in, in what I'm doing with Fertility Help Hub to raise awareness and talk about all sorts of different holistic fertility issues and topics, the things we would have loved at the time, because there's such a need for people to, to know that yeah. they're not alone in this. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm really glad you brought that subject up, the one of male um, uh, subfertility, that actually it is a subject that's totally been neglected. And actually, if you think about most people's experiences when they go to a fertility clinic, if they go as a couple, tend to really primarily be centered around the woman. And and that's the kind of situation that's become the norm. And and the man, really, his input seems to be reduced down to essentially... um, you know, just a, a semen analysis yeah. and that's it. Um, and actually I, I, I feel that that's so wrong and we need to start changing that because men are such a crucial part of this journey. Of course they are. And, and they face an enormous struggle, not just in terms of dealing with their own emotions. And quite often there isn't enough support about that because unlike with women who I think, you know, um, will go out there and, and seek support via different avenues and, and social support groups and, Facebook and Instagram and so on, that there isn't quite that same community for men. And I think there's even more stigma attached to talking about it. Plus the fact that they quite often have to be the strong ones, you know, supporting their partner in it too, and facing all of the emotional consequences of that. So I feel that actually men are carrying around a huge burden 
mm-hmm. and a huge emotional burden that they're just not being allowed an arena to to express that in and actually we need to start considering that and and we need to start doing something about it and part of that actually starts with us as as doctors and as medical professionals making men feel valued and important an important part of this whole process and this journey and you know teaching them about it and and starting this education much earlier on as we've said with you know young girls and women we need to be doing the same for men so that it becomes a normal subject that men also talk about you know when they go for a pint and so on Um, and you know that that's how it should be it shouldn't have this embarrassment and stigma because it's a massive issue Mm -hmm. you know it's really really massive between 30 to 50 percent of couples who find themselves that fertile will have male factor um, that contributes to that that's a huge number of people yeah. and and we're just kind of glossing over it and it and it's terrible you know look at the rate of male suicide as well um especially amongst young men it's it's awful and you know i can't help but feel that part of that is also the fact that men just find it so much more difficult to be able to express and, and deal with emotions and feel supported when they do that um so so there's a huge amount of work to do with this but I'm pleased that we have started and that we are trying and that's what matters. And I just think we need to get better at it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and for people who are trying to conceive naturally or they're um, mm-hmm. using assisted reproduc- reproduction, a question that readers ask mm-hmm. a lot is just, mm-hmm. just general advice for optimizing sperm and egg quality to support any method of yeah. conception. Yeah, yeah. Um, Great question. And simple answer to that is the conception plan, basically. So um, (laughs) so find out about that. Is that on your website? Yes, it's on my website. I'll share the links with you so um, that your audience can benefit from that. But that's essentially, you know, the the work that was showcased on this morning and really which I built, um, well, a a huge part of, of my, you know, career doing, which is essentially you know, looking at how we use a combination of evidence-based science along with other esoteric healing techniques um, and wellness techniques to help someone to become pregnant. And that really is looking at how do we optimize general health and how do we optimize sperm and egg health. And in summary, really, it's there, there is no kind of fast fix to this. There, there has to be a combination of various different ingredients that go into it that can sometimes take a while because you know the the sperm turnover rate is three months mm-hmm. and actually you know the the time taken for um a, a follicle that starts off a really tiny follicle a primordial fo- follicle that starts off in your ovary to reach the stage of where it's actually a follicle that gets recruited um within the ovulation process can also be three months so three months is this kind of time we talk a lot about within the fertility world in terms of really getting on board with things like your diet. So watching what you eat um, and being really kind of, I wouldn't say strict about it, but being careful and considered in terms of your approach. And I talk a lot about the concept of eating in a very clean way. So eating wholesome, nutritious food that hasn't been processed, hasn't been contaminated, is as organic um, as it can possibly be, simply because we now have a lot of evidence that various different chemicals and things which um, are absorbed by the food that we eat can essentially have uh, negative consequences 
on our health, on our hormone health, and also on our sperm and eggs. So that's a really massive thing that we can control and do to help ourselves. Then exercise, that's another really important one. So that's really good in terms of improving blood flow to all of your pelvic organs, like your uterus, um, which is getting ready for implantation, as well as your ovaries, which is where the eggs are going to come from, as well as your testicles and sperm. Um, And also, you know, in terms of releasing feel-good hormones, which are very important because that internal environment that you create for pregnancy to occur is just as important as all the external factors. So we mustn't forget that. And obviously, of course, exercise helps to keep your body mass index within the normal range, which is also vital um, if you're wanting to get pregnant and also pregnancy thereafter in terms of reducing your risk of obstetric complications, which is a whole other story. And then there's factors like sleep, which are often underestimated by everyone pretty much. I mean, sometimes even including myself, you know, we tend to think, oh, we can just skimp on sleep and it'll be fine. But actually sleep is such a crucial part of our general well-being, but also our fertility, because it's really the, the only time during the day when our body detoxes. So it gets rid of all the rubbish and all the leftover hormones and chemicals that are just serving no purpose at all other than to be toxic. And it gets rid of them. Um, and it's also when you know we, we have melatonin produced, which also has been shown in some studies to have an effect on fertility. So there's a whole bunch of different reasons as to why sleep is important plus it improves your immunity and especially at a time like this when everyone's looking to be as as immune robust as possible it's really really important and then the concept of what I call toxin-free living so in a nutshell that's to do with looking at the kind of things that we're using in our household in the products that we apply to ourselves our toiletries um, everything that really we, we put on ourselves and I was doing an Insta live just before this talking about um, the effect that clothes can have as well. I mean, most of us don't realize that even the clothes that we wear can be contaminated with chemicals. Um, and it's the cumulative exposure of a lot of these chemicals that can become quite destructive and endocrine disrupting. So it starts to interfere with your hormones and starts to have an effect on your fertility in that way. And then of course, sex, um, which is, vital and and very important and the way that we have sex and different approaches to that again a bit of a taboo subject it's considered a bit embarrassing to talk about but you know it's amazing the number of times when I ask the obvious question of you know how often are you having sex which of course I have to ask Um, and you know what the the recommended thing that everyone knows is two to three times a week Mm -hmm. but it is honestly in fact if anyone ever says that to me I'm shocked because most people (laughs) are just having nowhere near the amount of sex that they need to be having. And obviously there's things like people leading really busy lives and having all sorts of various different commitments and so on. But it's also really amazing that the only time people sort of seem to have sex is when it's scheduled. So at the time of ovulation and um, you know, I just think there's, yes, we all know that that's, you know, the time when you're likeliest to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. But I think this whole approach that we have about scheduling things like sex needs to change because that in itself introduces a huge amount of stress, which, you know, I talk about. Oh, it's so destructive. And, you know, stress in itself is, is such a massive negative factor when it comes to fertility. I know there's a lot of controversy around this and some people who don't necessarily believe that but if you look at the studies the fact 
you know, just that just one factor, and that's that stress alone increases the amount of adrenaline and cortisol in your body. And cortisol itself reduces the amount of progesterone that you have, which is an essential hormone if you're looking to get pregnant. So it throws a lot of things off balance, not to mention that it puts you in the state of, you know, of, of fright and flight where you're, you know, you're getting ready to kind of run away from danger. And, you know, if you think about it, if you're stressed, if you're chronically stressed, that's really not an ideal environment to be introducing a baby into, right? Because though you may think you want a baby, what your body is telling you through all this stress is, can I handle a baby? You know, am I ready? Um, I'm too frightened at the moment because there's all these different factors that are that I'm having to manage and all this stress I'm having to handle. And it's, you know, it's a really important way that our body communicates with us. But yet so many of us ignore that. And the other thing I find amazing is so many people, when I ask them about stress, most people say, oh, I'm not stressed. Um, <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> stressed. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And I always take a step back and go, okay, so let's talk about, you know, what you do in your average day. And almost inevitably, as soon as I start asking that question, <laughs> the other person starts to laugh with me because they suddenly realize, of course, they're stressed you know, from, from the moment they wake up and they need to meet a deadline or they need to rush their breakfast and, you know, get to work on time to, you know, just before they go to bed and they need to answer some emails. All of us are stressed. And I think to say we're not, you know, we're living in denial. So we need to find ways of trying to manage our stress. We, we can't get rid of it because of the world that we're living in. Um, I mean, just look at the pandemic and the effect it's having on a lot of people's mental health and anxieties. But different ways that we can find to rebalance that. So things like meditation and yoga and acupuncture and all these different things. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of so many of these um, healing modalities and I use them myself. You know, I share that very openly and I'm a, a, I have been doing since I was very young. So, um, you know, it's just something I've grown up with and, you know, now I'm able to share with, with the people that come and, and see me. And I think it makes a huge difference, massive difference. And, you know, I'll, I'll send you the link. Like I say, you only need yeah. to look at the stuff we did with the conception plan and how it featured and all the shamanic healing we did with our couples and how powerful that was in terms of helping them. So Brilliant. really hope that people take that stuff seriously. Thank you so much. Those are brilliant words of wisdom and everyone must check out the conception plan. We'll share the link. And just um, to finish now, if you wouldn't mind just giving a really quick update on where we mm. are with clinics and um, what this means, especially for people also who are um, were just on the cusp of being about to start NHS treatment. Is there any yeah. light on what, what that means in terms of prioritizing patients and, and yeah. timings? Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that for anyone who's been looking to start their fertility treatment and suddenly finding this pandemic upon them, I am so sorry for, for, for the sorrow and the grief that, that you've had to face with all of this because it's been massive. And I think so many people have been affected by it. The reasons behind it, um, which I've spoken about and, and which I'm just going to summarize here, are the fact that, as we all know, the NHS is, has been so overburdened with the COVID crisis. There's been a lot of deployment towards that front line and it's meant that a lot of our elective cases um, have had to be cancelled as well as the fact that we've needed to really clamp down on the risk of transmission with this disease to prevent people patients and also staff from getting it so so that's been really the main reason that's that's driven this decision to stop and terminate all fertility treatment from the 15th of april um, and only carry out 
urgent treatment for mainly cancer patients who um, essentially wouldn't really have any other option. And even then, it, it had to be made on an individual basis because, of course, some of these patients are immunocompromised. Um, but thankfully, the government has come out and said that um, clinics can apply to reopen from the 11th of May, which is wonderful news. Great. And what's really important about this news is I think for the first time that I can recall, it's really the government standing up and saying, look, we recognize how important this treatment is. We recognize how important it is to have a family. And we are prioritizing this treatment above practically any other treatment that's going on at the moment, other than that for COVID patients. And we are allowing clinics to reopen. And that is a massive move, yes. which I think, you know, I hope will signal an era where actually there will finally be more justice for couples who are struggling with subfertility, who've never had that justice before, who've always felt sidelined by everything else going on in the NHS. And this is the first time that they're actually being given that validation and the government is talking directly to them and saying, look, this is really, really important. And dare I say it, I hope it might lead to actually better funding across the NHS for That's subfertility. But we we wait to hear about that. But obviously, we're now waiting also to hear about, you know, how clinics are going to be able to, to handle this because we're still going to be operating and offering treatment during the pandemic. You know, we're, we're seeing, yes, we're on the other side of the peak, but we're still not through this yet. So every clinic needs to be super 